Uh, what a great uh, Sunday to be able to get into Revelation chapter 20. Uh, this morning, if you have a Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 20. We're almost at the end of the book. I mean, we are, well, there's two more chapters left. We're not only the book of Revelation, but it's the end of the Bible. This is like God's final word on things. And when you think about the book of Revelation this morning, whether you realize it or not, Revelation chapter 20 is one of the greatest and most controversial chapters in the Bible. We can go to that next uh, slide that is there. Um, it's kind of slide intensive today, and my iPad isn't working, so um, so uh, it, just as you guys hear it, just go for it. But the millennial reign of Christ, let me tell you why it is so controversial. It's controversial in church history because people were biblically literate. Okay, and I'm not slamming you guys. I'm not, I, I just I realize like we don't talk a lot about the millennium. But yet, when you think about the Bible, and you think about the church and the early church, this doctrine, right around 380 AD to 400 AD, it blew up. And it became the issue that the church was talking about. And you know, I think about all these issues today. There's, there's um, same-sex marriage as being a big issue today. Uh, there are issues, you know, other issues that are in the church. There are, are different things that come up, doctrinal issues. Uh, there's uh, Calvinism, Arminianism. There's uh, cessationists that don't believe spiritual gifts are today. And then those that believe that spiritual gifts are, are still available for us today. There's all of these, but the millennium was one of the biggest controversies in the church. And it was this simple thing of understanding that the answer to our prayer, when Jesus taught us to pray, and for thousands of years, people have been praying in this way. And maybe you learned to pray this. I did as a kid. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. What does it say after that? Thy will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. Chapter 20 is the answer to that. And then the big controversy came because there were these different views of the millennium. If we can go to the, the next slide there. Three views, and I'm going to give you simplified views. Um, there are nuances and there are differences, but here, here's the big things, the big three. It's called amillennial. And amillennial means no millennium. There are those that believe that there's no literal millennium of Christ. There's no 1,000-year reign where Christ comes back to the earth and he sets everything up and he rules. Now, those that are amillennial, they believe that, in a sense, we're in the millennium now. What they believe in many ways is that Satan is bound. Right now he's bound. When Jesus died on the cross and uh, he resurrected, that Satan was bound. Um, they believe that uh, Satan will be loosed again and he'll wreak havoc on the church before Jesus returns. And they, they also believe, again, I'm oversimplifying this, but I'm just trying to make it simple for you guys and, and for myself. Um, this was one of the most study-intensive weeks I'm trying to cram, okay, about 25 hours of studying this week into about 45 minutes. So um, we're going to be going kind of fast here. Um, they believe that when Jesus returns, there will be one general resurrection. And then the new heavens and the new earth will be created. Okay, that's amillennial. The second view is something called postmillennial. This is that Christ returns after the millennium, almost like amillennial. But let me explain this. After 1,000 years where Jesus comes back to the earth and he reigns on the earth 
and he causes the government to be a, a government that is good and compassionate and righteous and just, at the end of that millennium, then what happens is that Christ comes back. And he comes back because we, the church, kind of usher that in by changing things, by preaching the gospel, reaching as many people as we can, politics changes, more Christians are put in office all around the world, and then as soon as the the earth is ready and, and the church is done, the church's job, then Jesus comes back and he reigns. And by that time, they believe that... Um, that most of all the, the corruption will kind of just be put down and, and things will just be on track, okay? That's post-millennial. Um, there is this uh, understanding in post-millennial that the general res- resurrection will happen after this. And again, they also believe that Satan is bound now. And then the premillennial view is this. The binding of Satan is yet to come in the future. It's when Christ returns, the second coming of Christ, then Satan is bound. Um, they believe that Christ returns before the millennium, and it's his return that sets up 1,000 years of peace. So that's the, the beginning of the millennium at Jesus' second coming. They also believe that um, the loosing of Satan at the end of the 1,000 years will be followed by the resurrection and judgment of the wicked at the great white throne. So there's two resurrections, one before the millennium and one after the millennium. And that after the millennium, the new heavens and new earth will be created and the old heaven and old earth will pass away. So I just summarized hundreds of years of church history and controversy in a few minutes. And uh, let's get right into the text this morning. Okay, Revelation chapter 20. Start with a really good thing that happens is that Satan is bound for a thousand years. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now, when we read this, it's just a nameless angel. We don't know what angel this is, but this angel... Um, has the key to the bottomless pit, and he chains Satan. Now, we know from Revelation 1.18 that Jesus has the keys to Hades and to death, but he can give them to whomever he wishes. It's kind of like, here, here's the key, go ahead and, and do this. And while the angel may not use a physical chain, it's a real chain, the, the main point is that Satan will be bound. Now, I, I believe, and I'm going to teach it from the premillennial viewpoint that Christ returns before the millennium because as I go through Revelation 20, you're going to see that, um, maybe you'll see, that it just seems to make sense in that way. Again, many other godly, scholarly Christians have believed other things, um, different views of the millennium. I'm not about to say, hey, we're going to divide over that, you know, today, all right, pre-millennium over here, all millennials over here, post-millennials over here. No, I'm just going to teach it in the way that, with conviction, in the way that I believe um, that makes sense in Scripture. As we consider this, Satan is not God's equal opposite. And sometimes we think of that, like Satan and God, they're the equal opposites of one another. And uh, they both have this power, and there's this power struggle, and sometimes Satan, you know, wins, and sometimes God wins. And yet, realize this, that at the end of this, this time... Remember in Revelation chapter 19, at the end of Armageddon and this battle, that I just look at it, I just imagine like 
God just saying to an angel like you, get him. It's just like he gets them and like grabs them and chains them up. And yeah, I just imagine like a choke chain, you know, for a dog, like just pulling them and like binding him in this bottomless pit. So even though Satan is the opposite of God in character, he is not the opposite of God in power. Um, so I disagree with those who say Satan is already bound and he's chained. I look at ISIS today and it doesn't seem like Satan is bound. It seems like Satan is rampant. When, when I look at Abu Saif, in fact, um, a lot of the, the reports recently about the bomb that just went off in the Philippines yesterday um, is that it was possibly Abu Saif, um, you know, a terrorist group that is there in the southern part of the Philippines. You know, I, I think about demon possession today. I just, I just look at some of the movies and the things that come out today, and I just look at it and go, hey, I don't think that Satan is bound. I think that Satan is, his influence is very alive and very well today. And I know that sometimes Christians pray for the binding of Satan, and I understand what that means. You know, when it comes to the binding of Satan, what people are praying is that the schemes and power and the influence of Satan would not prevail in a person's life or situation. Hey, Thomas and Joanna, they're back from Germany. Hey, how's it going, guys? <laughs> so, um, people, when they pray to bind Satan, they're, they're just asking that the schemes and power of Satan would not prevail. That's a good thing to pray. But we cannot bind Satan indefinitely. If we could, why don't we just do it? Right? Why don't we just pray, just bind Satan indefinitely, and then there's no power and influence? If I just pray that every day, okay, Jesus binds Satan, and, and then every day I'm like, okay, cool, I just bound him, so today Satan free, you know, good thoughts today, and everything's going to be fine. Um, we should pray prayers of spiritual warfare, but pray specifically the promises of God's word. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, it says that we bring down strongholds, and um, that the weapons of our warfare are not like the flesh, but they're spiritual, and um, we could, we could pray that Christ would extinguish those arrows of the enemy by that shield of faith. So I understand when we pray that, that Satan would be bound. What we're praying is that, Lord, I pray that Satan's influence in this person's life would not prevail. And that is a good thing to pray, and we should pray that. Because one of the things that we're going to see is that Satan's chief um, tool, his chief weapon is deception. And so we should pray against that deception we should pray for clarity of mind. We, we should pray that God protects our hearts and our minds. So I really believe that the thousand years that is mentioned six times here in Revelation chapter 20 is a literal thousand years. Because when you interpret scripture and use numbers in the Bible, unless there's some really good reason in the text that tells you that it's not literal, then take it as literal. So for example, when you see numbers and and the numbers aren't preceded by figurative speech. Take it at its face value. I believe that there will be a seven-year period of time, which will be Jacob's trouble or the wrath of the Lamb or the tribulation. I believe that these thousand years are really 1,000 years called the millennium. And that's what the millennium means is 1,000 years. In fact, some of these verses use the definite article the in front of the thousand it doesn't say 8,000 years, it's the 1,000 years, as though it's a specific 1,000 years that people have known would come. And I really believe that because this kingdom that Jesus sets up on the earth is mentioned many places in the Old Testament, that this is that literal 1,000 years. The early church 
always held to the belief in the literal thousand years. And it wasn't until the late 300s, it was after 300 years after Christ that a man named Tychonius, he's the one that pushed for a spiritualized interpretation of the millennium. That it would be understood as a spiritual reign of Jesus and not a literal reign. Now, Tychonius wasn't a big figure, but you know who was? There's a guy named Augustine. Augustine took Tychonius' teaching and said, I believe that, and he's the one that kind of popularized it. In many ways, Augustine became the father of amillennialism. So, again, differences when you go down in church history um, where people fall, but I'm just telling you where amillennialism kind of got its, its beginning. So, back to verse 3. After the angel binds Satan, it says, And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. Now, do you remember when Jesus died that, in a sense, Satan tried to seal Jesus in the tomb and he couldn't? But here's Satan now who's going to be cast into this bottomless pit and he's going to be shut up and there's going to be a seal. And notice that it says that so that he should deceive the nations no more. The primary weapon that Satan has to use against people is deception. To deceive means to mislead. Think about the word mislead. It means you're leading, but you're leading in a wrong direction. Deception is Satan's greatest weapon. And how is deception most effective? It's most effective when you mingle it with truth. Someone that comes out with a blatant lie and you know that it's a lie. You know, you just kind of back away. But when you talk to someone and, and there's some truth that's kind of mixed in and there's some deception, then it gets really difficult to discern. Think about this. This lie, you blew it. God hates sin. Therefore, God is against you. You just sinned. You just um, viewed pornography. You just... Uh, yelled at your, your brother or sister. You just raged on them. You just stole something. Wow, and God hates sin. Both of those are true. But the therefore is the deception. Therefore, God is against you. God is for us, not against us. He wants us to repent. He wants us to change. He wants us to come to him for forgiveness. Think about this lie. Again, the truth part, God didn't answer your prayer the way that you wanted him to. You prayed that someone would be healed. You prayed that you would get the job. You, you prayed that this situation would work out, and it didn't work out. And therefore, God doesn't care about you. So notice that there's some truth, but then there's some deception that's in there. And that, those are the most difficult deceptions. Here's another one. Truth. God loves everyone. True. Absolutely true. The lie, therefore, everyone is saved. And that is absolutely false. So notice that deception is such a powerful weapon that Satan uses. The greatest defense to deception is what? Truth. The truth of God's word. And the more that I know God's word and I understand God's word, the more that I can recognize and spot deception when it comes. The more that I'm in God's word, and that's why it is so important that when we teach the Bible, that we anchor it in God's truth, that on Sundays, I'm not just teaching motivational lessons. Like we, we keep, it's one of the reasons why 
we have Bibles available for you to use. You know, we, we want you to bring a Bible. We want you to read a Bible. Because if the message is not anchored in the Word of God, then I don't know if I'm going to be deceived. I mean, some things might sound good and some things might not sound good. I'll tell you what else. When it comes to biblical truth, it is absolutely important that you read the Word of God for yourself. When a, a, a person that is regenerated, that means born again, when, when someone has a relationship with Christ, the Holy Spirit will take the word of God and interpret it and teach you. And you pray, God, help me to understand your word. And you begin to understand as you read it. It, it in, in a way, um, inculcates you or inoculates you against all of the lies and deceptions that are out there. Because you don't have to know every lie and deception that is out there. We don't have the time to be experts in every aberrant theology. We don't have the time to know every cult and all of their teachings. But when we study the truth, when you hear something, and you go, you know what, that doesn't sound right. You might not know the address, the scripture and the, the chapter and the verse. But if you are constantly in God's word, God begins to transform your mind. It says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, he renews your mind. You're able to see things. In Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible is all about knowing God's word. So as you begin to read God's word and it just becomes a part of you, you know what happens? Your wisdom, your judgments get better. You, you make better decisions in life. Why? Because you kind of have this understanding of God's word. When I'm not in God's word, I'm susceptible to a lot of deceptions. And I want you to notice that nations like individuals can be deceived. Do you think Iran is, is very deceived today for the majority? Now there are some that are, opening up to truth and, and Jesus is meeting them. But I just think about Islam and how radical Islam is taking over this part of the Middle East. So there's a deception in nations. What about Tibet? You think of Buddhism. There's some deception that is different deceptions, but there's kind of like a national deception that, that might be there. What about India and a lot of the pluralism? Many different gods. Yeah, there's some deception in an area. What about Israel? You know, Israel, for the most part, is a very secular nation. There's, there's a deception in Israel. Or it could be very legalistic, just following the law. Think about Europe, humanism. It's mankind is the highest. People are the highest. And therefore, reason is what's to be worshipped. And think about the United States. You know what? There are many materialism. In the United States, naturalism, only what is natural, only what I could see and touch and feel is real. Hedonism, pleasure. And there are many deceptions um, in the way that Satan deceives nations just as he deceives people. But during the millennium, without Satan's influence, the truth is much easier for people to, to, to discern. Now, the most perplexing part of this passage to me is the end of verse three it says but after these things he must be released for a little while why all right it's like everything is good now right we have this thousand years of of like no deception and 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 jesus rules and government is good and you could trust people that are in leadership and and it, there's compassion and and yet at the end of this time we are going to look at that later in the chapter. But let me say right here, we have to say that it is a part of God's plan. And because it's a part of God's plan, 
I pray this morning that you take heart in that fact that God is sovereign and he is in control. Now think about this. Satan is loosed at the end of this, which means what? All hell breaks loose again. You know when it's most difficult to trust God is when it seems like all hell is breaking loose in your life. And it just feels like God is not in control. It just feels like my prayers aren't being answered. They're hitting the ceiling. My faith is being checked. I'm struggling. I'm going through all of this. And I want to encourage you from God's word this morning that even when it seems like all hell is breaking loose in your life and in your world, that God is in control. It's not like he got overpowered by the devil at that moment. And like, that's why your life is kind of messed up because your angel lost a fight. You know, it's just like, oh, oh man, my angel, man, he has to get MMA training and, you know, and man. So God is in control. Um, the next thing we see in verses four through six, kings and priests with Jesus. It says, I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Now, I don't know about you, but I hate it when people say they, because I never know who they is. Like, who's they? It says that they sat on them. And, and from the context, it could be the they is the 24 elders representing the church in Revelation 4.4. It says that the 24 elders um, sat on the thrones. So it could be them. But also it could be the apostles. Let, let me read this to you out of Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. So Jesus said to them, and I, I love this, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory... You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. I love the fact that it's called the regeneration because everyone in that kingdom, there's this regeneration of, of people that follow the Lord. Um, people's hearts, people's lives are different. So that even that, that, that time period is called the regeneration. It also could be all of us as followers of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 6, 2 and 3, it says this, do you not know that the saints, that's us, the called ones, the, the ones that are uh, following God, were made holy because of Christ? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you. So Paul is writing to the Corinthians. The Corinthian church was kind of a, a messed up church in a lot of ways, right? But he calls them saints. So if you don't feel like you're a saint, it's not because of your good works that you become a saint, that you get canonized. It's because of what Jesus has done that you are a saint in this way. It says, and if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels and how much more things that pertain to this life? In other words, trust God, trust his wisdom, trust um, following his judgments because later on the saints will judge the world. So, Yes, the they could be any of those groups. And then it says, Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for the, it says a, but literally it's the, for the thousand years. So consider this. The first thing that I noticed about this scripture is that when John is writing about this, he says, then I saw, it says here, um, the second part of 
Verse four, then I saw the souls. So John saw souls. Now, the word for soul is suke, and it means the vital force that animates the body. It's the seed of emotions and will and personality that is not dissolved by death. So a person's body. If a person is in a tragic accident and that person has a limb amputated, are they any less that person? Absolutely not. If a person loses a a sense of sight or a sense of hearing, does that person cease to be that person? No, because it's the soul. There's something that lives beyond our flesh and our blood. And John, at this point in time, saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. You know, I, I remember this movie that I saw called Cocoon. Have any of you seen that movie called Cocoon? It's, uh, I, I don't remember the whole premise, but there's a, um, there's a home, a convalescent home. And um, I, I don't remember how it happens. I think it's aliens or something. But, but basically what happens is the people's exterior, their skin and everything um, at the end. And, and I'm just telling you the end so you don't have to rent it. They, it's a good movie, but they peel that off. And as they peel off the outer body, what you see is just a light. You see like this figure, this, I I don't know what our souls look like, but I I do know that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. That these souls are there. And notice that it also, uh, I believe that these are from Revelation 6.10, where they cried out, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. These souls of the tribulation saints were those that were beheaded for their witness to Jesus and the word of God. Um, And I know that this is speaking of those who died during the tribulation, but I believe that there are many who are beheaded for Christ today and for God's word today. Uh, You just, crazy videos that get out there, they go viral, um, they get taken down, but all around the world today, that there is a beheading, a literal beheading, which... Even if I go back like three years ago, I think, about three years, that was unheard of. Un, unheard of. The hard part is that now it's so commonplace to hear about hostages that are beheaded with ISIS and, and this, you know, these beheadings that happen. You know, I think about this. They were beheaded for what? What does it say? For their witness to Jesus and for what? For the word of God. So what about you? What about me? What, what are you willing to die for? just want you to think about that for a second. What are you willing to die for? Are you willing to die for, for the testimony of Jesus and for, the will, and for the word of God? Because when I think about dying for the word of God, John Wycliffe, um, who translated the Bible, he was persecuted. They didn't kill him. He died, but they exhumed his body because they're so angry that he was giving the Bible to people that they burned his body after death. But there was another man named William Tyndale who was killed. That's where we get the Bible translations into English. What was happening is that the church at the time would not allow people to read the Bible outside of Latin. Okay, So um, at that time, there was a lot of corruption in the Roman Catholic Church and because it was in Latin, and then Tyndale and Wycliffe started translating the Bible, they're like, no, don't translate it, because only we are qualified to teach the Bible to other people. 
people should listen to what we say about the Bible and not read it for themselves because they'll be deceived if they read it for themselves. Now, Wycliffe and Tyndale, they translated the Bible. And then there was a man after them named John Huss. And I just wanted to briefly hit on John Huss because his testimony for the word of God is so powerful. You ever hear uh, the phrase, we're going to cook his goose? The word Huss literally means goose. This is where it comes from. That phrase originated as a reference to a man whose last name means in his native language in Czech, goose. His name was John Huss. He was literally cooked. He was burned at the stake. But in being cooked, he lit a fire of both nationalism and church reform. He died on July 6, 1415. Like Wycliffe, Huss emphasized personal piety and purity of life. He stressed the role of the Bible as the authority in the church, and consequently, he lifted biblical preaching to an important status in church services. Because here at Regeneration, we go through the Word of God, we open up the Bible, and we go through books of the Bible. We owe this, in a lot of ways, to this man named John Huss, who said that the Bible should take a primary role in the church service, and the Bible should be taught, and it should be open, and people should be reading it. John Huss also denounced the immoral and extravagant lifestyles of many people in the clergy. And in his book on the church, he defended the authority of the clergy. They are anointed by God and chosen by God, but claimed that God alone can forgive sins. Because at the time, the church started saying, no, you have to come to this priest or to this person in order to have your sins forgiven. And John Huss said, no, there's one mediator between God and man, and that's the man, Christ Jesus. He claimed that no pope or bishop could establish doctrine that was contrary to the Bible, nor could any true Christian obey a clergyman's order if it was plainly wrong. Huss was imprisoned. He was sick. He was physically wasting away by the long imprisonment. He became ill. He had the lack of sleep. He protested his innocence, but he refused to renounce his alleged errors unless he could be shown from Scripture that he was wrong. And what he said is, if you could show me from Scripture that I'm wrong, I'll recant. But he couldn't be shown from Scripture, so he didn't recant. When John Huss was lit on fire, he said, I will gladly die. And he went before the council and said, I would not, even for a chapel full of gold, recede from the truth. Huss replied, God is my witness that the evidence against me is false. I have never thought nor preached except with one intention of winning men, if possible, from their sins. So today I will gladly die. The fire for John Huss was lit using Wycliffe's translations of the Bible into English to light the fire. And when I read about that and how I could have 12 Bibles in my house and not read them, how we could... We could think, you know, the Bible, oh, like, I don't, you know, it's, I'll just come and I'll just listen. It's more than that. The word of God is living and it's powerful. They died for the testimony of the word of God. What am I willing to die for? And if the word of God, if people came in and the government said, okay, you could teach this just like during the, the cultural revolution in China and just started taking the Bible away or during, you know, the the communistic rule in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union, and they took the Bible away, would I be willing to die for that? Would I as a pastor be willing to go to prison if they said, hey, there's some things that you can't teach when you get to these passages of the Bible or these parts of the Bible. Here's what you can teach. So these are real things that we're facing today. And we should take heart from 
those that have gone before us that because of their testimony for Christ and the word of God, they were willing to give their lives. Where's the courageous people today that are just saying, as Christians, I see courageous people that do crazy, stupid things that are very courageous doing those life, you know, death-defying types of things. But where are the Christians with courage today? We're the Christians in the workplace that after work are willing to talk to a friend, even if that friend might unfriend them on Facebook. We're the Christians today that are willing to say something if they might not get the promotion. We're the Christians today that are willing to be made fun of at school because they're trying to reach out to someone and invite them to church. See, we have to be willing to be made fools for Christ because of what Christ has done for us. And this is what John Huss and the martyrs throughout the centuries, they cry out to us, what about you? What about me? What am I willing to stand for? What do I believe in? And so the characteristics of the thousand year millennial reign of Christ, some of the great characteristics, there'll be three groups of people who make up those who are part of the first resurrection. They're the ones that have the glorified bodies and reign with Christ. One, those who died in Christ All the way from the Old Testament until uh, the taking away in the rapture of the church. Abraham, how did he get to heaven? By faith. Noah, how did he get to heaven? By faith. Moses, how did he get to heaven? By faith. Now they had sacrifices, but the sacrifices only represent the sacrifice, the Lamb of God who is going to come and take away the sins of the world. But they still had faith in that God would forgive them and cover their sins. The second group of people are those, I believe, that were alive and taken up during the rapture. I hope that's us. I really, you know, the Lord might tarry, and it, could not, it might not be in our lifetime. I want to be a part of that generation. I just, I, that would be amazing. And then those who are martyred for Christ during the tribulation period after the rapture. So our reward for faithful service will be according to our faithfulness while we're alive here on earth. You can read that in Luke 19, here in Revelation, also in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Second characteristic of the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. These are questions that I, I, a lot of them are questions I came up with. I was telling Tony this morning, like, I think, I think the hours of study this week were because I have so many questions. I just have so many. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our generations that we should do them, okay? So I know that there's some things I don't fully understand right now, but I'm doing the best that I can, looking through a, a glass dimly, so to speak, and understanding these. But from what I see, those who will be on the earth and repopulate the earth during the millennial reign of Christ are in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 43. When Jesus comes back to set up his kingdom and the division of the sheep and the goats, do you remember that? And it says that Jesus will say to them, you know, to the, the sheep, you know, over on his right, come and enter into the rest, you know, the place that is prepared for you. You know, I was hungry, you fed me. You know, I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was in prison and you visited me. And this is called the judgment of the nations or the Gentiles. And because of their faith, they actually protect people. They feed them. I believe that Jesus's brethren being the, those, even the Israelites um, during the tribulation period. They enter, he says, enter into my kingdom. They enter into the millennial kingdom. But those who are unworthy are sent into eternal damnation and not worthy to be allowed into Jesus's kingdom. So I believe it's the tribulation saints that populate the um, earth during the millennial reign of Christ. 
The third thing, the citizens of earth will acknowledge and submit to the lordship of Jesus. Israel at that time will be the world power, not because they've gained it by voting, but because it talks about in, in Jesus coming back and establishing his kingdom on earth. Right there from Israel, right there from Jerusalem, the Temple Mount will be the seat of power. It will be a time perfectly administrated and enforced righteousness on this earth. You could read that in Amos chapter 9 and in Isaiah chapter 2. Fourthly, there will be no more war. There will still be conflict. Because as people have children, remember during this time, the earth is repopulated. People will have kids, but there won't, there'll be conflict, but war will not be tolerated. Five, this is the key. People born during the millennial reign will still need to put their faith in Jesus and they will still be saved by grace during the millennium. It's still saved the same way by grace through faith. Um, animals relate to each other differently. That's number six. Um, and, and the way that they uh, relate to humans will be transformed. You know, it talks about the lion and, and the lamb or the wolf and the lamb. And, you know, I, there's, there's people that say we'll be vegetarians at this time, you know, because of the way that, you know, you know we walk with these animals. I, I, I don't know. Um, I hope not, but... Um, but, you know, before the fall, it seems like, you know, they were probably vegetarian. So it's probably, probably good for us. It's probably why kids hate vegetables. It's their inward rebellion. Uh, verse 7, <laughs> King David will have a prominent place. Uh, we know that in Ezekiel, um, he'll rule, you know, if in Israel as a king again. Uh, there will be a time of purity and devotion to God. And there will be a rebuilt temple, restored worship um, as a memorial of God's work in the past. So those are just some characteristics that I found scripturally in the Old Testament about the millennial kingdom. But let's get to the two resurrections. Verse five. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. So this is the first resurrection. So the first one is that right before the millennium, but the rest of them um, did not live again until after the thousand years were finished. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death also known as the second resurrection, has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now, scripturally, it looks like there's two resurrections. It's very clear right here that there's two resurrections that is being spoken of. In John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29, Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Again, I believe the first resurrection um, is before the millennial reign of Christ. All who have died in Christ before, all those that are uh, taken in the rapture, all those that died during the tribulation will be given these glorified bodies. And the second resurrection is after the millennial reign of Christ, where the wicked are raised and given their bodies prepared for eternity as well. Pastor Bill's going to teach on this on Wednesday evening, Daniel chapter 12. It says, uh, at that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never uh, was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt now read with me in verse 7 
Satan unchained. Now, when the thousand years have expired, and we're going to answer this big question of the why, um, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive. Again, notice his tool. Deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. Now, this is almost unfathomable to me that after the 1,000-year millennial reign of Christ, Satan will be unchained and stir up another rebellion through deceiving the nations. Ezekiel 37 and 38 speaks of the battle with Gog and Magog, but this is a different one. That one comes from the north. This one comes from the four corners of the earth. It says in verse 9, They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Now, the beloved city is Jerusalem. So during this time, they come, they surround Jerusalem again because that's the seat of God's government. Um, And I I just can't imagine this. There's no more crime. There's no more corruption. Every police action is only good in motive. It's only good in in its carrying out of action. Every, Every ruling in every court is right. Every justice is, every judge is, is true and there's, there's correct um, judgments. There are morally good leaders with integrity. People follow the principles of love and justice and yet people will still rebel against God and his people at this time and they surround Jerusalem. That is amazing to me. I really believe that part of that anti-Semitism that we see throughout the world is satanic. Now, all racism is evil, but there's a specific hatred towards the Jews that doesn't make sense throughout history. Why are the Jews such a center of, of just vile hatred throughout, throughout all of history? And I really believe because Israel, um, it stands as a testimony of God. When Israel became a nation again, that was just an amazing thing, miraculous I believe that the devil wants to destroy Israel because it's the testimony of God. So at the end of the millennial reign, how does God deal with this rebellion? Are you ready for this final battle? And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Boom, that's it. That's it. It's just like Elijah, you know, when he calls fire down from heaven. God's justice, it's served and the time for mercy has passed. God's justice must be satisfied at this point. Then in verse 10, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast, remember the Antichrist and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The lake of fire is the hell that we think of when we think of the word hell. So now we get back to the big question, why? Why does at the end of the millennium, and amillennialists, postmillennialists, and premillennialists all believe that at the end of this time, Satan's going to be released again, and there's, he's going to wreak havoc on the church. So the question is, why? I believe in premillennialism because it makes sense to me that it shows the difference between outward conformity to rules and inward worship and obedience. Outward conformity to rules. You could have children and and. You could have a child in a classroom, listens to all the rules, does all of the right things, lines up when they should line up, turns in the homework when they should turn in the homework, 
writes their name in the upper right-hand side of the paper with the date, does everything, and hates your guts as a teacher. They, they could just obey because they don't want to get in trouble, and, but if you gave them a chance, they would overthrow that classroom. If you said, hey, you have a chance to be the teacher, and you make all the rules, boom, all of a sudden, tables are turned over, and everything is absolutely different. It really shows the difference between moralism and legalism and rules and true worship of God. You know, you could be here today as a morally, um, a moral person that follows rules and regulations, but your heart can be far from God. You could just be going through the motions. Let me tell you a second reason I believe that Satan has released is it shows the need for faith in Christ to change a person from the inside out. Because if the government is all good and there's compassion and there's justice and yet there's still rebellion, it shows that only God can change a person, only Christ can change a person from the inside out. Number three, it fulfills God's word in the Old Testament scriptures about the kingdom of God. So it's fulfilling prophecy. It says that God, it shows God really is who he says he is and he's sovereign and he's in control. But to me, the fourth reason that I want to share, and there's probably many others, it's to show that people are without excuse. Let me explain that. When we rebel against God and when many people rebel against God and they're angry at God, many times what they blame is what happened to them or their upbringing or their environment. And I get it. I, I don't, I'm blown away. I'm absolutely blown away when I see someone walking with God that had just a brutal upbringing. Man, I, ha, I hear stories, you know, when I was a, a principal of a, an at-risk school in San Jose, um, you know, every kid there just about had stories. You'd read their file, you know, beaten up by their mom or abused by their dad or by their brother or they were, I mean, just crazy things sent from house to house. You know, we would have kids sometimes that were at that school that were maybe, you know, fourth, fifth grade, and that was their 16th home. Just bouncing from place to place. And, and you think about that and you go, yeah, I, I understand, you know, the environment really makes a big difference in how we're raised. And yet that argument is put down when they have the perfect environment. That Jesus is reigning and he is reigning in truth and there really is justice and there really is love and there really is compassion. And yet still within the heart of people, there's still this desire to be in control. And I don't want to submit to anyone else who tells me what to do, including God. So when the devil is released, this deception again comes out. And I believe that people in their pride and rebellion still have unconverted hearts. So how does it all end? In verses 11 through 14. This ends with what is known as the great white throne judgment. It says in verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. I believe this is, we'll get to that in the next chapter, but when the heavens and the earth are destroyed and there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and notice books were opened. So listen, plural, books were opened. And another book, singular, was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things that were written in the books. God is on the throne. The earth and heavens come to an end. 
Second Peter 3.10 says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. So I believe that this is the time of this second resurrection. Books were opened, and yet there was another book that was opened. That was the book of life. And here's the deal. If you aren't in the book, you'll be judged by the books. Okay? If you aren't in the book, you're going to be judged by the books. I won't be judged for my sin. Now, that might seem weird to some of you, but understand this. If you understand um, theology and the doctrine of grace by faith because of what Jesus has done, the wrath of God was put on Jesus. That's why he died on the cross. A sinless man, a flawless man who had done no wrong, took our penalty upon himself for the wages of sin is death. And what we must do is to put our faith and trust in him. To say, God, forgive me and cover me because of what Jesus and his sacrifice has done. My name is in the book of life. If I'm born again, if I'm regenerated by the Holy Spirit. That's when our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And it's called in other places the Lamb's book of life. Because Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But if my name is not in that book, I'll be judged by the other books. And these books are going to judge us according to our works. In verse 13, the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. So again, death and Hades, this uh, temporary place before the, the final judgment. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, I don't know if you guys have seen um, the statue where the guy is sitting there like this. What's that called? Okay, it's called The Thinker. Um, it's by a, a French um, Rodin, a Frenchman named Rodin. It was a figure that was uh, commissioned in 1880. It was a doorway. If you see the larger sculpture, The Thinker, what we call The Thinker now, but he originally wasn't called The Thinker, um, is in the middle of all of these other sculptures that are in torment behind him. And this was part of an original sculpture, which was a big one called the Gates of Hell. So in the Gates of Hell, the thinker is there and contemplating, thinking about hell, thinking about these things. Uh, it was a sculpture that was to go along with uh, Dante's Inferno. And you know, I think it serves us as a reminder that hell is not something to joke about, but it is something to think about. It's not something to take lightly. We should never, ever say to someone, go to hell. We should never desire that for a person. It says in Matthew chapter 25 that hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. So God doesn't want anyone to go to hell. Jesus came so that we wouldn't have to go to hell. Hell is a real place though. It's not soul sleep. God is gracious and merciful. He's slow to wrath. But there comes a point in time when if God is truly just, he must punish sin. Think about our country, maybe, you know, and just different things that you see of injustice. 
Thomas Jefferson said this, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that his justice cannot sleep forever. I think sometimes we have a hard time with understanding hell because we don't understand how heinous and offensive sin is to a holy God. We don't get it. We don't understand that. It's kind of like, um, I have a friend um, that just recently, she's married, she's a, a black woman married to a white man, and someone asked her, had the audacity to ask her this question, how can you be married to a white man? Because you're black. She said that she just, she was just like, what, what, what do you say to that? Like, the ignorance or the, like, so she's just like undone by this. But here's someone that doesn't understand that that question is such a dumb question in its premise. It, and you know what I think? I think that when it comes to sin, we think of sin like a slap on the hand. Well, I, I messed up. Sin is repulsive to God. It is so repulsive that Christ had to come and take our wrath upon himself. That Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane prayed this. He prayed, oh my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. What is that cup? It's the cup of God's wrath. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus died for us as our substitute on the cross. And it is so important for us to understand how absolutely offensive sin is to a holy God. And I close with this as we go into a time of communion. There was a saying when I was growing up in the church, there were bumper stickers that said this, born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. What does that mean? Born once, physically born. It's the only time I'm born. Then I'm gonna die a physical death and I will die later on a spiritual death. But if I'm born twice, if I am saved, if I'm born again, then I'm only going to die physically. And that's the only time that I will die. It says in Titus 3, 4 through 7, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Listen to this. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This morning, we are going to partake in communion together. And when you come and you take that cup and you take the bread back to your seat, the cup represents Jesus's blood that was shed for us to forgive us of our sins, to pay the penalty for our sins. The bread represents Jesus's body that was broken for us. And my question this morning to you is this, do you wanna be judged by the books or will your name be in the book? If you've never prayed a prayer of faith to receive Christ as your Lord and your savior, that means you put your trust in him. That means that you believe that he is and that you ask him for forgiveness and you trust that he will forgive you because of what Jesus has done. If you've never done that, I'm gonna pray a prayer for you that, that is kind of like saying I do when you get married. It's just step one. It's the enter into a covenant relationship in which God will never leave you or forsake you. And if you have received Christ as your Lord and Savior, 
what a great time for us to look at our own lives and say, God, what am I willing to live for? What am I willing to die for? What is my life all about? And so I'm going to pray. I'm going to have the worship team come up and then I'm going to have you take the bread and cup back to your seat and I'm going to have you hold on to it and we are going to partake together as a, as a whole church body. So let's pray. Father, this morning, we want to thank you for your word. God, I'm, I'm just thankful this morning. You took a very um, meaningful passage, Lord, and you were able to um, help us to understand that. We prayed for wisdom to understand your word. And I would pray, Lord, that the fruition of that would be us understanding a little bit more of your character and who you are. Right now, Lord, I want to pray for everyone that is here. If there's anyone that has not received Christ as their Savior and their Lord, I pray that today would be that day of salvation, the day when they are regenerated, the day when they're born again, enter into your kingdom. Lord, I pray that they wouldn't have doubts as to whether or not they would go to heaven because their trust isn't in their own thoughts, their trust isn't in their own good works, but their trust is in Christ. And so if that's you, if you've never prayed,